0: Today's sermon is going to be covering the topic of Christian assurance, its definition, its duty, and its delight. Our main text, the springboard, will be from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And seeing that this is a very topical sermon, uh, we won't just stay here. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. This is God's Word. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. Well, I recently heard a story of a peanut farmer who who was preparing for the upcoming crop. And he had already bought all of his peanut seed. He had already contracted his field preparations to a third party. And the seed supplier had given him a definite date. This is when your seed will arrive. So, time went on and he further prepared for the crop. And one week before the seed was supposed to arrive, the seed salesman received a call. And the man told him that the peanut seed didn't pass a germination test and so not a single bag of the seed was going to be sent. So as you can imagine, uh, the farmer was very upset, uh, but the seed salesman had the unenvied responsibility to break the news to him. Gaining reliable certainty is essential for everyday life, is it not? Gaining reliable certainty about our status before God is essential for our spiritual life as well. Now this morning's sermon, Lord willing... According to how the elders have asked me to preach on this, it'll be the first of three sermons that I preach on the topic of Christian assurance this year. So, in our text today, we see that the will of God for his people is for them to possess assurance. And it's an assurance that lasts until their race of faith is finished. And the text qualifies this assurance as being a full assurance. We see in the text that a lack of this full assurance leads to something that I think everyone in this room who is a believer can testify to, sluggishness. And the true assurance, the text says, it requires the exercise of faith and patience. And the result of this is a Christian life that is faithfully lived, that inherits the promise that our assurance testified to. So according to this text, I think we can rightly conclude that full and infallible assurance of salvation through Christ, full and infallible assurance of salvation through Christ is the duty and the joy of every true Christian. So, how would you define Christian assurance? What is Christian assurance? Christian assurance is the biblical persuasion that I personally have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a confession that in the past I have been saved from my sin, that I've been converted. It is a confession that I presently am being progressively saved, and it is a confession that I ultimately will be saved on the day of judgment from God's wrath. Personal assurance of salvation isn't just a confession that Christ Jesus is the Savior. Lots of people confess that. It's a a confession that He's my Savior. Personal assurance of salvation confesses that though I am a great sinner, Christ is a greater Savior. It says that though I haven't attained perfection, I have truly been changed by the grace of God. Christian assurance is witnessed in the conscience of the believer with the testimony of the Holy Spirit when we call upon God as Abba Father. And we know that the testimony of the Holy Spirit is always true. Assurance itself is not salvation. We must distinguish them. But assurance flows from salvation. The Puritans said it best. Faith in Christ brings a man to heaven, but assurance brings heaven to the man. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon once preached of assurance. He said, Assurance is a mountain of spices, a land that flows with milk and honey. To be, to be the assured possessor of eternal life is to find a paradise beneath the stars where the mountains and the hills break forth before you into singing. The full assurance man baffles the very devil. So this is Christian assurance defined. But how does it apply to us here personally? First, we need to be persuaded that Christian assurance is the biblical norm. It is biblically normative. And by, the, by this, I mean that assurance of salvation is possessed in some measure by every child of God. Some have a stronger measure. Some have a weaker measure. But every converted saint possesses assurance. And this is the biblical pattern all over Scripture. It's not something extraordinary that's reserved for the holiest of saints. Christian assurance isn't something to be attained uh, privately in some mystical way. Uh, But the scriptures uh, set forth by example and precept that it is the biblical norm for the ordinary Christian. And I think we can see this very clearly in the Apostle Paul. Uh, Personal assurance of Christ's saving work, Christ's calling on his life, and of that of the Christians that Paul wrote to permeates all of his letters. We know that we should possess Christian assurance because Paul writes in Romans 8.38 that he is convinced nothing can separate believers from God's love to them in Christ Jesus. Listen to how he wrote of the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. We know that God loves you and that God has chosen you for salvation. And if you think about it, this is kind of intuitive as well, because at its most basic level, what does it mean to be a Christian? To know the Lord Jesus in a personal and saving way. There is an inherent assurance in that. So even though that is the biblical norm that every child of God should possess some measure of assurance, that doesn't mean that our assurance is always as strong as it should be our assurance, and often, if we're honest, ebbs and flows. Uh, I think of the example of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher uh, over in England and in Scotland. Uh, It was 1949, and uh, he had been uh, pastoring at Westminster Chapel in London for at least 10 years. Uh, But he had to take a summer sabbatical because he was physically exhausted, he was overworked. Uh, and he was somewhat depressed, and he was scheduled to come back at the end of his summer sabbatical and and begin his labors again. And so it's the Saturday of it's the second Saturday in September, Saturday afternoon, and he's scheduled to preach the next morning. And he has sat in front of his study all day, and he's not been able to come up with a single word. Uh, he said it was as if all his troubles and the depression that he was going through just came barreling in on him at once and he was despairing and he thought, I, I don't know how I'm going to finish. And it was in the midst of this mess, this funk, uh, that light broke in uh, to his mind. He was reminded of a phrase in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, God who never lies. And you'll remember the verse... Uh, Paul says that which God who never lies promised eternal life before the ages began. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this word of assurance overwhelmed him with weeping, and he said the sermon was given to him at the spot. And that's a, a wonderful example sometimes of our life, isn't it? You know, it's often in the worst times that we still possess even a mustard seed Our confession speaks of such a Christian that by this small measure of assurance that they are preserved from utter despair. But it's by that experience that Martin Lloyd-Jones later said, it is very sad to contemplate the fact that there are Christian people who live the greater part of their lives in this world in such a condition, a condition of spiritual depression lacking a strong and robust assurance of salvation. He writes, it does not mean that they are not Christians, but it does mean that they are missing a great deal. So, possessing assurance of salvation, that is the biblically normative pattern for every true believer. So, something we should possess. So, while it's biblically normative, what is the nature of this? Assurance. And what I mean by that is, what is the experience of assurance in the consciousness of the believer uh, in our daily lives? Is it certain? Is it doubtful? Is assurance simply positive thinking, or as you'll hear uh, folks in my generation say, good vibes? Is it good thoughts? Um, is it personal confidence? Is it tied to a personality trait? The scriptures say no. The, the scriptures say that assurance is infallible. What does that word infallible mean? Well, it comes straight from our confession, but it's a Latin word, and it means literally unable to deceive or unable to be in error. So you think about the infallibility of the scriptures. That's something that historic Christian theology has confessed. It's what we confess as a local church. And what that means is that the scriptures are unable to be in error. Not just that they're not in error, but it's impossible for them to be in error. So that same title is applied to Christian assurance, scripturally and confessionally. So true assurance of faith is something that every Christian should possess. And when we do possess it, it's infallible. So think about that for a second. Think about you possessing an assurance of faith as a believer that is unable to err, unable to be an error. So what that means is that possessing true assurance, we're not deceiving ourselves. We're not presuming, but we're also not despairing. We are living in accordance with reality as God sees it. And the reason that Assurance is infallible, is infallible is because of the three grounds that it rests on. And this comes straight from our confession, chapter 18. Our assurance is infallible because it rests on first, Christ clothed with His promises. Secondly, the inward evidences of grace. And thirdly, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack these a little bit. So first, Christian assurance is infallible because it rests on Christ clothed with His promises. When we repent of our sins and believe in Christ, the Scriptures say that we are united to Christ, which means that we received Christ as it were clothed with His benefits. So think about the benefits of the person who comes to Christ. They receive the forgiveness of all of their sins. They receive what the Scriptures say an imputed righteousness, that God justifies the sinner on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness He obtained while living on this earth. We also, through union with Christ, once for all, die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to live a new life. These are all the benefits that come through faith in Christ. And so we know that our assurance is infallible because it's founded upon salvation by Christ. The second one is the inward evidences of grace. And what that speaks of is the reality that the gospel not only promises to save us from the wrath of God, but it promises also to save us from sin. And so, just as God has promised to save us from His wrath and we cling to that, we should also cling to the other promise that He promises to save us from our sin to make us more holy. And then thirdly is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 8 very briefly with me. Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 8 verse 15. Paul writes for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father. So it's by the Holy Spirit that a Christian says calls upon God as Father. Notice verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with with our spirit that we are the children of God. How does the Spirit do this? Does the Spirit whisper in our ear, you're a child of God? Does He give us some mystical experience? No, go back to verse 15. It's by the Holy Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit bears witness, not to us, but to God the Father, of the reality of our sonship. So there's a double witness when we call upon God truly as Father, the witness of our heart through faith and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can call upon God as our Father. So it's these three grounds that make assurance infallible. And so if you would ask yourself, do I possess true Christian assurance? Do I have assurance of my faith and salvation? The Scripture is very clear that to possess true assurance is you must possess all three of these grounds together. It's not as if you can possess one and not the other. You possess all three. Now, we'll possess these in different measures, some in weaker measures, some in stronger. But when we possess these three together, in any measure, we can say with the authority of Scripture, I am a child of God. I belong to the Lord. Because when we possess these these realities, we show that God truly has done a work in our souls and in our lives. And this is really the practical side of assurance. This is really balm for the conscience of the saint. If we're honest, we confess often with Paul, as he did in Romans 7 I do not understand my own actions. The good that I want to do is what I do not do, and the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. And he concludes, battling his indwelling sin, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And it's through understanding assurance that we can proclaim thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This truly is the medicine of heaven offered to us. Martin Luther understood this. Listen to this hymn that he wrote. Then was the father troubled sore to see me ever languish, The everlasting pity swore to save me from my anguish. He turned to me his father heart and chose himself a bitter part. His dearest did it cost him. Listen to this. Thus spoke the Son, hold thou to me. From now on thou wilt make it. The reformer John Calvin also understood the nature of Christian assurance. On his deathbed on April twenty fifth, 1564, he was dictating... He was so weak, he couldn't write. Uh, he was dictating his last will. Uh, this was really the last public letter that folks would have from him in Geneva. And listen listen to a part of what, of what he wrote. I render thanks to God, not only because he has had compassion on me, his poor creature, and continuing his mercy, he has supported me amid so many sins and shortcomings, which were such that I well deserved to be rejected by him a hundred thousand times. This is the confession of a dear saying on his deathbed. And brothers and sisters, this is the full and infallible assurance that Christ gives to us as people. So if Charles Spurgeon was correct that assurance is a land that flows with milk and honey, and if we need this stability that assurance gives... Then it is of the utmost importance for us to understand what the scripture says how we should attain and maintain our assurance. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Peter writes, therefore brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. There's that word sure. For if you practice these qualities you will never fall. So maintaining assurance, sureness of our salvation is commanded. Paul commands in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Really, in a sense, the entire first letter of John, 1 John, is dedicated to just this. He writes in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, that he writes these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know that they possess eternal life. So, We need to ask a question, why does Scripture command us to reach assurance? Why does God want us to be sure of our salvation? And the answer is, it's very simple, uh, but it is profound for understanding the Christian life. God wants His people to have the stability that comes from the certainty of salvation. We cannot live our Christian life as we ought if we are not stable in the knowledge that I have been saved. As I said earlier, assurance of faith and salvation, they need to be distinguished because assurance flows from salvation. I'm not saying that you have to work to attain salvation, but Scripture does command us to maintain our assurance. The assurance of that salvation. If you belong to God, God wants you to be assured of that. But if you don't belong to God, God also wants you to be assured of that. So, Scripture does command us to maintain our assurance and God is the God both of the ends and of the means. So it stands to reason that if he commands us to cultivate assurance, he's also going to give us the means where we can do this. In our scripture this morning in Hebrews chapter 6, two of the means are faith and patience. So the enjoyment of salvation cannot happen apart from a living faith, cannot happen apart from us Uh, cultivating assurance. And pastors and theologians, they approach this from a lot of different angles, but I want to be as simple as I can and put before you this morning two means of cultivating assurance. The first is secret communion with God, and the second is public fellowship in the local church. The simple reality is that the Christian who is not personally and privately seeking fellowship with God, they won't have assurance that their faith is real. But the opposite is also true, that the Christian who is seeking fellowship with God will, generally speaking, have assurance that their faith is real. Now, I know there's the situation of, uh, as the confession puts it, the child of God walking in darkness, the faithful Christian who is not aware of any known sin but feels as if the light of God's countenance has been withdrawn from their soul. I know that's a reality, uh, and I would be amiss to to, to say that uh, nobody in here has experienced that. So in a later sermon, I'll, I'll address that in more detail. But generally speaking, if we're being faithful and fellowshipping with God privately, we will grow in our assurance of salvation. Uh. Again, this is very simple, but that, this means being immersed in the Word of God and in prayer personally. Charles Spurgeon said backsliders begin with dusty Bibles and end with filthy garments. Thomas Watson said to read the Scripture is a love letter sent to you by God and to think in every line that you read that God is speaking directly to you because He is. Again, our confession of faith is helpful. In chapter 14, uh, called Of Saving faith. It describes how believers respond to the word of God because the, the reality is every revelation demands a response. And so we can spend as much time on the word of God as we want, but if we don't respond to what we're learning, then it's for naught. It's fruitless. the conf- The confession says that the saints act differently upon that which each particular passage contains. And so they give three different responses that we have to the to the Word of God. We yield obedience to the commands, we tremble at the threatenings, and we embrace the promises of God for this life and for the life to come. So when God commands us to do something in His Word, the true Christian obeys it. When God gives a promise in His Word, the Christian embraces it. And when God threatens in His Word, the Christian trembles in their heart. Uh, That's what it means to be communing with God and His Word, to be immersed in it and studying it, but also responding to it. But also, as you know, we must be spending time in prayer. The Puritan uh, Anthony Burgess wrote, we must make it our business to beg for assurance in prayer. And you think about the nature of prayer. God is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that affects the way that we Pray. When we pray, we pray to God the Father, through the mediation of God the Son, and reliance upon God the Spirit. Our prayers are Trinitarian. As the confession states in chapter 2, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation for all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. We pray God's Word. We don't pray just whatever we're thinking. That's idolatry. Uh, We pray God's Word back to Him. We pray for things according to his will. And when we say amen, we submit to his will, providentially and morally. Listen to how John Bunyan defined or applied prayer. He said, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And he also said, Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. I like that. Prayers a scourge for Satan. Uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, uh, in his wonderful book on assurance, he tells the story of a former elder in his church uh, who's has now uh, died to go uh, and he's with the Lord. Uh, Dr. Beakey was preparing to leave for a conference and he received a call from this elder. And the elder was distressed. He said, I'm in dire straits. I've, I've lost all assurance. God is angered with me. I, I must be a reprobate. And uh, Dr. Beakey said, well, I'm going to be at a conference for the next two days, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend 30 minutes each day with God. I want you to spend 10 minutes studying His Word. I want you to spend 10 minutes meditating on His Word. And I want you to spend 10 minutes praying His Word. And the elder responded, well, I can't pray. My prayer would be an abomination to God. There's, I can't do that. And Dr. Beakey said, no, don't listen to Satan, because not praying would be a double abomination to God. So he went to the conference, uh, and when he came back, he got to his office, and there was a little sticky note in his chair that said, uh, Elder, whatever his name was, uh, all is well with his soul. No need to see him. And the point Dr. Beaky was making was that he had lost his assurance through neglecting private fellowship with God. So his solution really was quite simple. He needed to restore his fellowship with God privately. Uh, But secondly, also, uh, one of the means of assurance is public fellowship in the local church. Um, We we do not need to neglect private communion with God, but that will spill over into our public life. Um, A Christian needs to be a faithful member of a local church, and if not a member, faithfully seeking membership. Uh, Public... Uh, faithfulness to the church—it's a great help to assurance. But if we're not being faithful, it's a great hindrance to assurance. And the logic behind this really is quite simple: we are saved individually to belong together corporately. As you've heard before, no Christian is an no Christian is an island unto themselves. And you'll hear oftentimes sincere Christians say, "Oh, I just want to know more of God's presence," and I want to say, "Okay." Are you going to church? Because God has promised in Second Corinthians, I will make my dwelling among them. Plural. I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God, in a special sense that we don't experience on our own, dwells covenantally with his people. And so if we would grow in our assurance, then we would also grow in our faithfulness to the local church. I think it's sometimes those outside the church who uh, understand that best. Ian Murray in his biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones tells uh, the story of a spirit medium uh, who led spiritist meetings uh, near the church where uh, Lloyd-Jones pastored in Wales, Scotland. And one Sunday evening she was sick and so she had to stay at home. uh, But she noticed all the members of that church going to worship. And she said that they had the look of anticipation on their faces. And so so she said, I'm going to go check this out. And so she went and she was converted. And she stayed faithful to Christ the rest of her life. But what's very interesting is what she said in her testimony of her conversion. She said, the moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a supernatural power. I was conscious of the same sort of supernatural power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings, but there was one big difference. I had the feeling that the power on your chapel was a clean power. If we had a greater sense of God's presence among His people in worship, it would be a wonderful help to our assurance. When we close the public worship on Sunday mornings and afternoons, that we could say God has been in this place and He has met with His people. But it's also in the local gathering that we partake of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, sometimes called sacraments. But these are wonderful means of grace for believers. Uh, Robert Bruce put it well when he wrote, While we do not get a better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the Word, There are times when we get Christ better. The fact of the matter is we are embodied souls. And so sometimes it's difficult for us as Christians to continue pressing on because we walk by faith and not by sight. But we are embodied souls and we have senses. And what God does in the ordinances is he condescends to our weaknesses and he gives us tangible signs of his promises to us. Signs that we can touch, that we can see. We can hear them in a sense because the Word of God gives meaning to them. We can taste them. We can smell them. One thinks of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham was 99 years old and uh, he had received God's promises 24 years earlier. In Genesis chapter 12, God had commanded him to leave the land of Ur and to go to the land of promise. And Abraham had went here he is 24 years later he has not received the promise of an offspring and he honestly stands in a self-induced mess he's had sexual relations with his wife's slave uh, because he doesn't trust the Lord's promise uh, of an offspring through Sarai and so here he stands the father of the faithful uh, with a very weak and failing faith and so what What does God do to His servant to revive his faith? He gives him a sign. He gives him the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. And He gives him this sign to renew his faith and his allegiance to the Lord. And I'm not being crude here, I'm being biblical. He gave him that sign so that every time Abraham looked down, he was reminded that God had promised him, I will give you offspring. And so, baptism and the Lord's Supper function in a similar way for weak and needy Christians. In our baptism, we are immersed into the water and rise up out of it. And in that, God is essentially telling us, just as you have done that, just as you have been washed, I've immersed you into My Son. And I've given you new life through Him. Live in accordance with that reality. It's a great assurance. And the Lord's table, through His minister, The Lord essentially says, come at my table, come and sit, and I will feed you. I will feed you my body and my blood. Partake of me by faith. I know you are weak. I know you are struggling. I know you need strength to carry on. I offer you myself. If we are not faithful to the local church, these are the means of grace that we miss out on. So we've seen that assurance is uh, supposed to be normal for the Christian. Assurance is supposed to be infallible for the Christian. Uh, we've seen that God has given us means to cultivate assurance, both privately and publicly. Next, we need to consider the fruits of assurance. What fruits does assurance produce? In chapter 18 of our confession, it says that so there's four, uh, three a heart enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, a heart enlarged in love and thankfulness to God, and a heart enlarged in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. So we may conclude that the assured Christian is a spirit-filled Christian, they're a happy and a thankful Christian, and they're an obedient Christian. Because the fact of the matter is, assurance and the Christian have an organic relationship. As we grow in assurance, we grow in trust and obedience. But as we grow in trust and obedience, we also grow in assurance. I think the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the responses to questions 26 and 28, uh, really define the fruits of assurance very well. Listen to what it says. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. We place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love. Don't you want that type of assurance in your life? But the fruit, one of the other fruits of assurance, it transforms our trials. Um, in our Christian life, we often face circumstances that are um, less than ideal, things we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. Uh, and, and to be honest, it can feel as if the very powers of hell are rallied against us. But if we're assured Christians, although hell itself may be raging around us, we have the peace of heaven in our conscience. But if we're an unassured Christian, if we're unstable, we may have peace all around, but we battle the torments of hell and our conscience. Fanny Crosby, I think, understood this very well. She is a famous hymn writer. Uh, She became a Christian at a very young age, uh, but when she was eight years old, uh, she had a, a, a bad case of the flu. And of course, during this time, medicine wasn't as good. And her daughter prescribed a mustard poultice for her eyes. Uh, And it blinded her at eight years old. Well, Her parents took her to uh, many doctors across the country, uh, some of the best. And they told her that her condition was irreversible. And as a young girl, she went home and wrote the following words. Oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. It's no surprise then that this same girl, when she was grown, wrote the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So, we will conclude with <clears throat> Assurance's for possibilities. The Scripture understands that there's only two types of people in this world. There's those who love God and those who hate God. There's those who are in Christ and there's those who are in Adam. Uh, There's those who are friends of God and those who are enemies of God. There is no middle ground. And so when it comes to assurance, the Scripture also gives us uh, not just two possibilities but four. Two for unbelievers and two for believers. And so as we go through these things, I would exhort you to consider your state before God and rightly discern this and consider how the gospel ministers to you in that state. So the first state are those who aren't saved and they do know it. The New Testament speaks of those who, quite frankly, are destined for hell and they know that they are destined for hell. Paul writes of them in Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, that uh, their consciences have conflicting thoughts that accuse or excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of their hearts by Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And we see this in our culture Uh These types of folks, they don't believe in Christ and they know they don't believe in Christ. They don't commit themselves to Christianity. Uh, They don't seek to please God. Uh, But at the same time, if you talk to them, they will say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe God is real. Um, But if you ask them, do do you love God? They'll say, no, I I know he's real, but I don't love him. R.C. Sproul uh, once told a story of encountering this type of person he was evangelizing I think in Philadelphia and he went through his evangelism questions, I think Dr. Sproul was a a younger man when he did this, he said if you were to die today, would God let you into his heaven? And the man replied, no, I know that he wouldn't. And Dr. Sproul said that he was shocked to hear such an answer. He had never heard anybody be so honest in their life. No, I know God would send me to hell. I know he would. Because the fact of the matter is, as R.C. Sproul uh, began to unpack what was going on in that man's life, he found out that the man was living a very sinful life, and the man knew that he was living a sinful life. So, if you are here today and that is your condition, hear how the Word of God addresses you. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness, God's kindness, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you know that you are not in Christ, repent today. The second type of person uh, that the scriptures give us with regards to assurance is probably the most dangerous type of person. Uh, It's a person who isn't saved, but they don't know that they're not saved. Um, We see this a lot in our culture. Uh, Folks think that um, they're right with God. They'll say it in very trivial terms. You know, me and God are best buds or me and the big man upstairs are all right. We'll settle it all, you know, when I I get up there. Um, You have those who will give more sophisticated uh, reasons for this. They say that man is inherently good or they will say all religions lead to the same place. In fact, these are the types of folks, when they hear such a stark division between those who love God and hate God, they say, well, I know I'm not doing as I should, but I must be saying, I don't hate God. I don't feel that intensely about hating God. So you have those in culture that are like that, who they're not professing Christians, but then you have those in the church who are like this. And I think these are the ones that are the most, this is the most dangerous state to be in. Um, these are folks that they profess to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, they've probably been baptized. They're members of a local church. Um, they perhaps teach Bible studies or even hold leadership positions in the church. But in the midst of all of this, they are lost. They don't have the grace of God in their life. Paul writes of them in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He says they have the appearance of godliness. They seem to have it all put together, uh, but they deny its power. All dress, no show. Um, but I also know that uh, for the case of the true saint uh, with a very weak conscience, this can be a stumbling block for them. And so we have to ask the question, how do we know that this is, this is our state? How, how can I know if I'm a false convert? And the letter of 1 John is really helpful at this point, and it gives three litmus tests to sift unbelievers from believers within the church itself. So the first litmus test, true believers trust in Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Scriptures. They don't deviate at all from what the Scriptures teach concerning His person and His work. They rest entirely upon Him alone for salvation. So in other words, a true believer thrusts their soul upon Christ for salvation. Secondly, a true believer Sincerely obeys Jesus Christ as Lord They don't obey perfectly That's not the point That's not the question we should be asking But They do sincerely Obey Their obedience may be imperfect But nevertheless They obey And they seek to obey And when they don't They are, they are grieved And then thirdly uh, True believers Love the brethren they love other Christians, and in particular, they love them in the context of the local church. Uh, they seek to be faithful in serving them. Uh, many of you know who Paul Washer is. He's a very well-known missionary and um, uh, conference speaker. And his wife, Charo Washer, uh, her testimony is incredible. Uh, she said that after serving as a missionary with her husband for 12 years she came to the realization that she was not a true Christian. And the Holy Spirit used the letter of 1 John to convict her of that uh, and to convert her. Uh, In particular, one thing she said really struck me. She said, it's not as if you have a score on all these tests or you can pass some and not others. She said, no, I realized that by failing one, I failed all. Um, One thinks of, I heard a story of uh, a pastor in our association, uh, his father was um, a deacon uh, in the local church. And uh, after one revival meeting or uh, something like that, he went up to the pastor afterwards and said, uh, great sermon, pastor. And the pastor looked him square in the face and said, are you saved? And it struck him. He said, well, yeah, I'm saved. He said, are you saved? And he just walked away. He said he stayed up that uh, that night, all night, he said the Holy Spirit was all over him. And before the morning came, he had closed true faith with Christ. Um, again, the point is not perfection, but uh, the three tests are believing Christ as he is revealed in the Scriptures, uh, imperfectly but sincerely obeying him as Lord, uh, and loving the brethren. And if one of these tests is lacking in your life, then you have reason to question the reality of. Of your salvation. The third condition is uh, somebody who is saved, but who is doubting the reality of their salvation. Uh, This is the condition of uh, the true saint uh, who has been regenerated and born again, uh, but for some reason is doubting the reality of uh, God's work in their life, the reality of their faith. And as I said earlier, in a later sermon, I'll address this in more detail. Uh, so we don't we don't have time to examine uh, the many reasons this could be. Quickly, our confession gives four reasons why a saint may doubt the reality of their salvation: uh, negligence in preserving assurance, uh, falling into grievous sin, strong temptations or attacks of Satan, or God's withdrawing the light of His countenance. Um, I would just briefly say, if that is you today, I would say. Uh, Two things. One, uh, if the loss of your assurance as a Christian is because of unrepentant sin, repent today, don't linger. First uh, 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. As David said, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Uh, Psalm 32, he was facing extreme uh, physical anxiety because he didn't confess his sin. Uh, but when he confessed his sin to the Lord, he said, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Uh, And the second thing I would say is, if you are uh, experiencing doubt, uh, and it's not because of any known sin in your life, I would simply say that the Lord Jesus is a compassionate Savior. And in particular, He has tread that darkness before you. He truly is the one, as Isaiah 50 verse 10 says, He has walked in darkness and had no light. He has gone there before you. In fact, He did it for you. And He will sustain you in it. Martin Luther, he understood the complexity of being the doubting believer. Uh, he, if you read things written by him or biographies about him, he constantly battled the accuser of the brethren. One of those instances, he said, when I go to bed, the devil is always waiting for me. When he begins to plague me, I give him this answer. Devil, I must sleep. That's God's command. Work by day and sleep by night. In another instance, he was writing about holding to God and his promises. And he said he was amazed by the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman in the Gospels. That she had the boldness to reverently, but the boldness to argue with Christ. You remember the situation. She went to ask uh, Christ to heal her daughter. And... Christ said, it's not right to take the children's bread, the people of Israel, and throw it to the dogs. Christ called this woman a dog, a Gentile. And the, the woman responded, yes, Lord, but even the dogs licked the crumbs under their master's table. Would you have responded that way? And Christ said, oh woman, great is your faith. And he healed, he healed her daughter. Of this, Martin Luther wrote, All this is written for our comfort, that we should see how deeply God hides his face, and how we must not go by our feeling, but only by his word. All Christ's answers sounded like no, but he did not mean no. And again, speaking of wrestling with God in prayer in this very Lutheresque way, he wrote, I dispute much with God, and I hold him to his promises. For some of us, the solution may be simple. We may possess assurance of salvation and we may have possessed it for a long time. And that's wonderful. But for other Christians, it can get a little violent. And sometimes it takes time. Uh, But God is faithful. If you are the doubting Christian, the Lord Jesus is a compassionate Savior and He will minister to your soul according to your need. And then lastly, there's the case of The believers who know they're saved. uh, These are those in the scriptures who are mature in Christ. Uh, They know they belong to Christ. They know that salvation is founded upon the very character of God Almighty, and they know God will not deviate from His word. They look in their soul and they look back on their life and they see, imperfect as it may have been, evidences of grace. Uh, They understand and have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. They are those uh, mentioned in our text this morning, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And to such ones, the Scriptures declare to continue in this. Puritan George, George Downame said, None are so perfect, but that their assurance may be increased. Because assurance is a lifelong pursuit. John Bunyan once wrote, A good improvement of what we have of the grace of God at present pleases God and engages Him to give us more. Therefore, get more grace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Would you have assurance? Then get it. Puritan William Guthrie explained it in this way, Learn to lay your weight upon the blood of Christ and study purity and holiness in all manner of conversation. And pray for the witness of God's Spirit to join with the blood and the water. And His testimony added unto those will establish you in the faith. Assurance of salvation is a meeting doctrine, but it's an experiential doctrine. To the young and to the old, to the babe in Christ and to the father in Christ, to the assured Christian and to the doubting Christian... To the false convert and to the unrepentant unbeliever, I declare to you this day that God extends His grace to you through Jesus Christ. We come out of both our sins and our graces into Christ by faith because salvation is in Him alone. Let's pray. Holy Father, we're thankful for how profitable your word is for instruction and in righteousness. We're thankful for the doctrine of assurance. Father, we pray that um, you would take these truths and minister them to our souls according to our need. And we pray that in this you would be glorified. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would please stand and turn to hymn number 376, What Grace is Mine.